0: episode four of Andraste's Gadfly, which means we hit our target, ambitious, modest target of doing four episodes in a year. Oh. us. Woo! Andraste's (laughs) Gadfly is a podcast where we talk about philosophy and the Dragon Age games, so if you're new here, that gives you a bit of an idea of what we're going to be doing. Normally, we do not do tinfoil theories about what's happening in the games, although with this episode, we might a little bit. So welcome to this podcast. I'm Jill Fellows.
1: And I'm Kira Thompson.
0: And today we're going to be looking at the way personal identity or sense of self is portrayed in the games using some philosophical theories of personal identity. So I want to set this up by saying this is, this is my passion. <laughs> I was really interested in this because there are some really weird characters over the three game series when we think about sense of self or personal identity. The ones that probably come to mind most readily are Flemeth slash Mythal and Solis slash the Dread Wolf, but there's also Cole, there's Anders slash Justice, there's Fenris slash Leto, and then there's some other interesting things that happen that are perhaps less fantasy-oriented, like the ways in which Liliana and Alistair in particular change their personalities based on the kind of feedback you, the player character, give them. So there is a way in which sense of self and personal identity come up a lot over the course of these three games. And I, I just want to geek out and talk about it with some philosophical theories. So Kira, let's start with like a little bit of background. Let's do our first segment, the first run and headcanon. So in Origins, Kara, did you kill Flemeth?
1: I don't think I did. The The first run, I honestly, I can't remember. I know that the, the last time I didn't because I kept dying during the fight. <laughs> and so- She is really hard to kill. I, I loaded a previous save and just made different choices because I just got too tired of constantly dying. And I was just like, okay, fine. I'll just let her live. And I think in the first, I'm pretty sure in the first one, I was very much taking a, I won't kill someone when I don't have to. So my best guess is I didn't kill Flemeth the first time, and I made similar choices the second time because I just didn't feel like I was making much headway.
0: (laughs) It is a really hard fight. The first time, as I recall, I did not kill Flemeth, but I did tell Morrigan that I did kill her. Ooh.
1: (laughs) Um, oh, that's great. That is an option. And I may have done that as well. Yeah. You just don't take Morgan on the fight with you. And then you come back and you're like, good job. Done. All done. Yeah. I think I did that the second time. The first time I really didn't get a sense of Morgan's character, so I didn't want to lie. But the second time, okay, full disclosure, I don't like the character <laughs> just personality wise. And so I, I generally do things just to make her angry. <laughs> or to to mess around with her so a second time I absolutely did lie to her
0: I I like Morgan the character I don't like Morgan the person yes maybe it will come up in our discussion yes. personal identity <laughs> okay so in origins did you kill Liliana uh, I didn't realize that was an option it is
1: I mean to be honest I I didn't do much with Liliana. So I I don't think I ever took her with me on a party as like part of my party ever. Was she a required character when you go to the to the? No. Yeah. Ashton.
0: No, then I don't think I ever took her with me ever. So for some background, because I realized there are some listeners who are not avid fans of the game. We were originally pitching this for game fans, I think. <laughs> So, with some background, the option to kill Flemeth arises because Morgan is in your party. She's ostensibly a friend of, of your playable character, and Flemeth is her mother. <laughs> and Morgan learns of this plot Flemeth has to use Morgan in kind of an underhanded ritual. It's actually not clear if this is going to happen, but Morgan believes it's going to happen. And so Morgan asks you to go kill Flemeth. And if you try to do that, Flemeth turns into a dragon because Flemeth is a very powerful witch. We learn how powerful in later games. And it is not easy to take her down. (laughs) Liliana is another member of your party. She is a very devout Andrastian. And you have an option of going to the Temple of Sacred Ashes, which is an important temple in Andraste's religion. And you have the option of Fouling the temple of sacred ashes, which she doesn't appreciate. No, if you do that with Liliana with you, she tries to prevent you, and you have to kill her. You can't stand her down with an intimidate. Oh, yeah, that's true. Depending on the choices you've made, you may be able to intimidate her. I have not done this. I have witnessed it done. (laughs) My husband accidentally did it. (laughs) (laughs) He was playing a character that thought that Andraste religion was crap. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to foul this temple because you get something out of it. It's not just you foul it to do it. You gain something from doing it. Or you think you will anyway. And so he did it forgetting that Liliana was in his party. Anyway, he killed Liliana, stared horrified at the screen, and then immediately backed up to a safe point (laughs) to undo what he had done. But it is canon that you can end that game with Liliana dead. Which raises, again, interesting questions for Dragon Age Inquisition. It does. (laughs) So you can end Dragon Age Origins with Flemeth and Liliana both dead, as far as you are aware. And then they both reappear in later games, alive. Which is an interesting question for personal identity. A couple of other interesting puzzles I want to throw out. In Inquisition... There is another companion character, Cole, who is a spirit who has taken human form. And at a point in the game, you have a choice of whether to help Cole kind of reclaim more of his spirit identity, which is kind of like this ethereal presence of compassion, I think, or help him become more human. So, Kira, which did you do? So I always make him more human every Mm -hmm. single
1: time. Because it makes Solus upset. <laughs> it's
0: I love not because of your choices are driven it, it, by who you
1: like and who you want to annoy. It has nothing to do whether I think it's better to be more human or more spirit. I think both would be lovely options, but I like Varric a lot more than I like Solace. And And Varric champions the idea of
0: Cole being more human, more of Yeah,
1: he's he's very much a Cole came into this world to be part of this world. Let's help him deepen that connection to this world. And the first time I made him more human, because I just found Varric more sympathetic in terms of his arguments. But ever since, it's just been, well, I know what Solus is now. (laughs) So,
0: (laughs) spoiler alert, (laughs) forget that. (laughs) Yeah, I usually make him more human. Solas is the one who's championing for him to be more spirit, to move away from his humanity and become more kind of ethereal. I have done that before. And it's interesting because I personally find that when I make Cole more human, the changes in his character and his personality are subtle. But Cole, to me, becomes more relatable (laughs) when I make him more human. And when I make him more spirit, he seems to be a lot more distant I mean, he's still compassionate, but I don't get the sense that he is terribly empathetic anymore, that he really understands where I'm coming from. And so I find him more distant and less relatable, which makes sense because he's not as alive and not as human anymore. And so I find that, that writing of Cole, I find the writing of Cole in general just super interesting. It is interesting. So... There are a couple of more characters that I just want to lay out in this discussion of first run and headcanon, even though you actually don't make a lot of choices that influence these characters. So we already mentioned that there's Anders. Anders came up actually in episode two as well, when we talked about romance options. Anders is introduced to us in the first game, well, the DLC for the first game. But when we meet Anders again in the second game, he's not exactly Anders anymore. He has mentally joined with a spirit so Cole isn't the same Cole is a spirit that takes on human form anders is a human that mentally joins with the spirit of justice like a quasi-possession yeah it's like kind of like a possession or a mutual cohabitation yeah. <laughs> situation in anders's body So there are kind of these two identities in one body that are sort of merging, but also sort of separate. We've already met both of them separately. So we get to know Anders quite well in Origins Awakening. And we get to know Justice. They're both companion characters. Justice at the time is animating a corpse. (laughs) I don't know what happens. We don't know what happens. That means that Justice can't have that corpse anymore and ends up fusing with Anders instead. But somehow between game one and game two, That is something that happens. And it changes both of them in terms of their personality and sense of self. Justice and Anders are not the same in Game 2 as Justice and Anders were when they were separate from each other. Yeah. (laughs) Which, in fact, Anders comments on it, and he says that his friend Justice has turned more into a force of vengeance rather than justice, which I think is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And then I think the last... One that I'll mention here, more may come up as we work through, is Fenris, who we've also talked about in episode two. Another romanceable character from Dragon Age 2, who had a pretty horrific magical experiment done on his body to fuse his body with lyrium. So he's like hyper strong and hyper soldiery. And in the process of that, Fenris forgets anything that happened before that magical surgery. So Before the surgery, we learn his name was Leto, but he can't remember anything of his life from before the surgery. And actually, memory loss is kind of a thing that happens a few times over the course of these three games. It also happens to your playable character in the third game, where you can't remember anything that happened before the explosion at the conclave that kind of starts off that game. So you can't remember like why you were there or what happened or anything like that. So... There's a lot of like memory stuff, spiritual human fusion things happening, people being more than they seem. I feel like there's a lot to discuss. So let's bring in some philosophical theories to help us talk about all this, shall we, Kira? Well, if we mean shall we,
1: (laughs) shall you? Full disclosure, this is not my wheelhouse. I'm the emotional support (laughs) podcast friend. This is not really my area of specialty, but I find it very interesting. So I'm here to explore it too.
0: This is slightly more my area. I did write a master's on personal identity and I continue to go back into this literature periodically just because I find it so fascinating. So let's do segment two, The Gadfly and the Dragon. The first thing I want to note, when it comes to philosophical thoughts about personal identity. The first thing I want to note when it comes to philosophical discussions of personal identity is there's usually a bit of a divide. You can have discussions that focus on the mind and the continuity of the mind as necessary for continuity of self. And you can have discussions that focus more on the body. So we have this division between mind and body. A lot of people track this back to our good old friend, René Descartes. (laughs) And his division between mind and body, his substance dualism, where he said humans were made up of like two things mind stuff and matter, physical stuff that were like mashed together. Meat stuff. Meat stuff. (laughs) And that really, like, the mind stuff was the more important stuff in terms of personal identity and sense of self. Descartes says, for example, he doesn't know whether he's dreaming. He doesn't know if his body is anything like he thinks it is. Maybe he's just dreaming that he has a human body and he's like a giant fish or something. He didn't say fish. I'm just elaborating. <laughs> or maybe an evil demon is messing with him and none of this is real, a la the Matrix. But even so, he knows he exists because he is thinking. So the mind determines that, yes, we exist and there's a continuity of existence and the body we don't really know very well, so the body becomes slightly less important. So this division between mind and body was picked up out of Descartes, taken into discussions of personal identity, and we see this kind of early on most strongly with John Locke, who theorized that personal identity, continuity of self, really rested on the mind and memory. So Locke thought, for example, that If you could remember something, then it was you that did that thing. And so we have a continuity of identity based exclusively pretty much on mind and memory. Like Locke went so far to say that if you got really, really drunk and did some really, really morally bad stuff, but the next morning you didn't remember it,
1: it wasn't you that did it. Which raises such interesting questions about responsibility.
0: It does. And Locke's answer to those questions is perhaps not the most satisfactory because what he said was like the law would still be just in punishing you because they can't tell whether you genuinely don't remember or whether you're lying to get off the hook, but don't worry, God will sort it all out in the end. In terms of whether you are truly blameful or blameless, <laughs> you know, yeah, in the,
1: yeah. in the moral sense, then you, you can't be responsible. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting
0: account of yeah identity intersecting with responsibility. So if you don't remember something, it's not you, according to John Locke. But conversely, if you do remember things like, say, you actually genuinely remember the life of Napoleon, then you are continuous with Napoleon. And it is you. And that's going to come up in the Dragon Age games. Yes. What this means is bodily continuity is not necessary. What's necessary is continuity of mind or of memory. And when we're talking about video games in particular, this idea that continuity of mind is more important has led to transhumanist theories. And video games are sometimes viewed as a bit of a gateway for transhumanism. So, what is transhumanism? Transhumanism is this idea that if the mind is more important than the body when it comes to personal identity, what we should try and do is find a way to shuck these frail, meaty bodies and just live in our minds like transcend transcend humanity transcend our frail human limitations and we often see this in science fiction portrayed by the idea of like uploading your consciousness to the cloud or something like that some way of preserving your mind without needing the fleshy body part and there are some theorists that have posited that video games are like a gateway to transhumanism. Because your avatar or your playable character is this non-meaty, non-fleshy vessel for you to travel around in virtual space. So it's like getting you used to the idea of of getting rid of your fleshy, meaty human body. And so there are both some celebrations of video games as, yay, the gateway to transhumanism. This is going to be the salvation of humanity and the way we overcome our, our humanity we save it by overcoming it. Like, don't puzzle on that too much. (laughs) And there have also been some questions of video games. Like what are we normalizing when we play these games and do they downplay the body? So that's something kind of in the background here, maybe to think about. Which is interesting, particularly what we've been doing
1: in this podcast is looking at, you know, how the playabilities of the character when it comes to making choices is a place where you can explore different identities in some sense right where I'm not the inquisitor right right so this transhumanist approach is almost like saying well I identify in some way that it is me who is running around Thetis," but that's not the case in how I view how I'm playing it so it's it's again this may be very much in terms of how the gameplay frames things, right? So the difference between a first person shooter and something like this type of game where you have an array of choices, which can allow you to explore being different than who you may
0: Mm -hmm. see yourself as. And inhabiting different bodies. Right, different. Like I'm not a Kunari,
1: <laughs> or or genders, or, or genders,
0: know, or sexual orientations,
1: or, or moral that. systems. Right. Yes.
0: <laughs> so we have this idea of the mind or memory theory of personal identity. We have the idea of transhumanism. I want to add a couple more philosophical theories. There is also when we talk about mind versus body, so I've given us the mind one in terms of the memory theory of personal identity, there's also a very embodied kind of pushback against that. And a lot of this comes from more feminist philosophical theories of personal identity that talk about how the body and embodied experience really matters to identity. So we can look at early works from Simone de Beauvoir, who talks about her body as shaping her experience of reality, that Reality is fundamentally different, differently experienced in different bodies. And we can talk about Susan Brisson and her discussion of embodiment and bodily trauma and how that affects sense of self and sense of continuity of self. That a strong enough trauma can make you feel like you've lost yourself or broken continuity with your former self. So there are ways in which there's pushback in terms of embodiment and embodied experience really mattering for identity in a way in which John Locke's memory theory does not touch upon. (laughs) So that's another philosophical tool to bring forward. There's also an idea of a social account of personal identity. So Hilde Lindemann, among others, develops this idea that when we're thinking about personal identity and sense of self, it isn't just mind and memories. And it isn't just body and bodily experience. There's also a social continuity that I learn who I am in part through interacting with other people. And especially when we're children, for example, our identity is socially created in the communities that we exist in. And other people, she has this lovely phrase where she says, people hold you in your identity. Or when that identity is no longer serving you, people need to be able to let go. And so there's a moral aspect here. Again, this idea of are you properly holding people in their identity or are you holding them in identities when those identities don't work? And when the person is trying to express to you, this is not who I am. And you're like, yeah, no, it is. This is who you are. (laughs) (laughs) So she says, you know, identity making and identity sustaining is social work. And in particular, she looks at children and she looks at people who have dementia and looks at the ways in which their communities hold them in an identity, particularly when they themselves may be struggling to hold themselves in identities. And I think that's really interesting. And this social idea of identity framing and identity shaping, I think there are some themes of that in the games as well. The last one I want to bring up So we have the mental account the embodied account, transhumanism and the social account of personal identity. And then there's this pushback against all of this. And I'll point to Derek Parfit's work here where he basically says, look, we spend way too much time worrying about personal identity (laughs) and sense of self. And it isn't actually that important whether I'm the same person today that I was yesterday and whether there's a continuity of identity. What matters is survival. And Parfit actually thinks that it makes sense to talk about survival with a loss of identity. So I could say at the same time, Jill survived. Jill is not the same person that Jill was. I survived and I'm not the same. And Parfit says to many people in talking about identity, that can sound like really oxymoronic. Like, how can you survive if it's not you anymore? <laughs> On the other hand, it fits with
1: lots of ways in which we colloquially talk about not being the same person yeah particularly after things like traumatic events or having gone through some you know a rough period of time where you come out of it and people use phrases like transformed or where it is I am now a new person or I've turned over a new leaf like those types of phrases as transformative where yeah you're not the same person anymore and that's okay. It's not like we need to have this continuity of self in order to make sense of who I am right now in the moment.
0: Right. Parfit goes a little bit more extreme. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. He talks about fission and fusion. So he says, imagine that human beings were like, like amoebas and we could divide to reproduce. (laughs) So we could fission and and I could just like split off a part of myself and now there are two of me. He says, in that case, we don't have one-to-one identity anymore, right? Like which one is the real Jill Fellows? Or if you like, you can mm-hmm. use like Star Trek transporter accidents <laughs> where we end up with two Commander Rikers, which I believe was a thing that happened. That was a thing. In Star Trek the Next Generation. Which one is the real Commander Riker? And there are lots of identity theorists puzzling with that, right? Because they both have the memories, they both have the same body. So we have bodily continuity, we have memory continuity. So who's the real one? And Parfit says, like, it doesn't matter. The important thing is Commander Rikers survived. In fact, it would be weird, Parfit says, to say, if the transporter works properly and we get a one-to-one, then we say Riker survived. Mm-hmm. But if the transporter, like, double works and we end up with two Rikers... How is two successes a failure? It's not, you've just doubled down on your success. He doubly survived. He's actually more likely to survive now because there's two of him. Two of them. Yeah, so Parfit kind of goes on these science fiction things. Although I say this, Parfit is doing it for a very serious reason, which I think we alluded to already, that he thinks our obsession with needing to have continuity of identity is not helpful just for the reasons you said. Mm -hmm. This is not how we colloquially speak about identity. And he also thinks it could lead to people being kind of narcissistic, that rather, if I think about what's important is survival in whatever shape or form that takes, this could lead me to be more compassionate to other people and less concerned with a one-to-one identity of myself preservation kind of issue. It could leave me more open to change. And, and so he's pushing our intuitions, I think, purposefully with these like transporter vision. He also talks about fusion where two individuals come together to form one. Yeah. He calls that survival as well. Yes, it's changed. You are not the person you were, but you have survived. Right. And that's what we should focus on. That makes so much more sense to me. <laughs> it breaks all the laws of identity, right? I,
1: uh, turns out I think I might be a Parfit fan. <laughs> The things I learned in
0: these episodes. So, okay, just to recap before we leave the segment, The Gadfly and the Dragon. We have mind and memory theory of identity. We have embodied experience as a theory of identity being important for identity. We have in the background this kind of issue of transhumanism, which grows out of the mind and memory theory and a drive to overcome our frail human limitations. We have a social account of personal identity where we talk about the moral and social obligations we have to hold each other responsibly in identities that serve. And then we have forget about identity and focus on survival. (laughs) So let's take these theories and move to our next segment, the game as frame. So Do you want to talk about the mind memory stuff? I do. Okay.
1: Because it's one, the the theory that I'm most familiar with, but it's also one that struck me as I was playing. It most vividly came up because I'm currently doing a playthrough right now and I literally just got out of the fade. Oh, you're playing through Inquisition. Yeah, I'm playing through Inquisition and we came out of the fade after, you know, leaving... Alistair to die, um, (laughs) which I've never done before. So that was emotional. But during the process of being in the fade, because you're recovering the memories. So the, the whole idea is at the beginning of Inquisition, you are sort of thrown into this situation where you wake up and you've got a mark on your hand and you don't remember what has happened. And so you are lacking memories. Now, it's not that you're lacking all your memories. So you still know certain things about yourself. So you know, you know, your history of where you're from. Yeah. You know, your name, you know, your family, those things. Yeah. Um, But what you don't know is how you survived, what the events were that led up to you getting the mark on your hand. And there are various things that people say they saw so they so the soldiers that find you reported seeing you stepping out of the fade being led out by a character the
0: a woman i think is all they say a woman
1: is very vague and some people attribute this to andraste sort of the the religious like
0: figure the jesus figure <laughs> <laughs>
1: And some people say it was the divine, which is uh, a character in the story who dies um, at this. It's basically this big explosion happens and kills a lot of people, but you survived. You're the As only one that survived. You're the only one that survived. And so the question is how did you survive? So fast forward to one of the major quest points, and you go to figure out what's going on with the Grey Wardens and you get thrown into the Fade. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you're falling out of a castle and you rip open a hole that gets you into the Fade to save yourself. Which works. I don't know. If it, it worked, but it was a bit odd. And so what you find, though, is that you are able to retrieve the memories of what happened.
0: With the explosion at the start of the game.
1: Yes. Yeah, so that the one of the quests... To get out of the Fade is actually collecting these memories. And so, and we're told by a, turns out to be a spirit in the Fade, that the reason that you've lost these memories is a nightmare demon has stolen them. Right. Right. So that's why you don't have a memory. So you know, forget concussion. You don't have a concussion. <laughs> no, nothing it's,
0: physical. Uh, happened.
1: Nothing physical happened. But this was literally memories being stolen from you by a nightmare demon. And as we're sort of walking along, my party together, and we're we're sort of there's always this you know conversations that sometimes happen as you're. Trudging around looking for resources and things. And at one point, I'm pretty sure it was Dorian says, This demon's stealing memories. Mm-hmm. And he says, That's pretty low for a demon. And I'm sort of like, because that's taking away who you are. Yes. Right. And so there, I think there is, in some ways, at least Dorian subscribes <laughs> to this memory account of self where who you are really is determined by the memories that you have. And that there's a sense that without these memories, you're not complete.
0: Yeah. And I think that even is in the quest that gathering the memories makes you complete. I believe that's talked about maybe by the divine. I can't remember now that you need to recover what was lost to become whole again. Yeah. And I think we see this theme again, again, in Dragon Age 2, where Fenris talks over and over again about how he doesn't remember his life before the magical operation that fused delirium throughout his body, right? And this is one of the wrongs that the slavers did to him, was robbing him of this memory, robbing him of himself. He says he doesn't know who he is right? And there's quests yeah. to try and find out who he is and reconnect with his family, discover what his name was before this happened. They renamed him, right? So Fenris yeah. is not the name he had before the operation. And there is this kind of sense that, of course, the operation, the surgery in itself was a wrong, and the slavers keeping him and using him as a weapon was a Ron. But one of the wrongs that happened was the loss of his former self. What's interesting too with the case of
1: Fenris is that his sister says that he fought to get the surgery. Yes, Right. So there's this sense in which the person he was before wanted this, wanted this, but now the person that he is now (laughs) is so filled with rage about it.
0: That it happened
1: and that he went through it. And yeah. And one way to make sense of that disconnect between the desires of his prior self, in some ways, is to think of him as he is now a new person who has been transformed by this process, not just in terms of lost memory. But also going back to that idea of how we can become new people
0: through, you know, through traumas. Yes. And- there's an embodied right. thing here, right? So the bodily account comes up as well. Yeah. In a way it didn't for the inquisitor because that was not, I mean, you would have thought maybe it was embodied trauma because there was an yeah. explosion, but that's not apparently what happened. Although what's interesting is one could
1: raise the question of if you go through the trespasser play, the DLC, to right. And where you, in the end, you lose your arm. Yes. Right? You lose your arm to save you from the mark. That's on your hand. Uh, That's on your hand. So your hand gets chopped off. So you've lost part of your body. And then the question does become, are you still the Inquisitor without the mark? Right. Does the mark become part of what
0: defines who you are? (laughs) And of course... Memory accounts would say no, right? Memory exactly. accounts would say, in fact, Locke even says, I think, that we can like chop off <laughs> your yes. finger and identity doesn't go with your finger. Identity stays where the consciousness is. So unless consciousness <laughs> is in, in your, your finger pinky. Or, or in this case in your hand, you're still the same. But in terms of your position in the world, there is a way in which you've kind of changed. Yeah, I also want to point out some other places where the memory account occurs in these games spoiler alert although I feel like we need that on all our podcasts <laughs> but this is a big reveal Solas is the dread wolf <laughs> so Solas your companion in Inquisition it turns out is a god which honestly made me like his character so much more <laughs> I I have to be one of the few people. I know this because I know the fan base. I have to be one of the few people that when I played this the first time, I was like, my God, Solis is such an arrogant ass and I don't like him. And then at the end, I was like, oh, oh, he's a god. Well, yeah, no, his arrogance makes sense. It makes sense. To- <laughs> now I get it. I get why he always thinks he's right and he's belittling everyone. <laughs> yeah, see, that just but- made me hate him just more. <laughs> So, Solus is the Dread Wolf. The Dread Wolf is an eternal, as far as we know, fairly eternal, fairly immortal being. The boundaries of his life have not been clarified. He has not always been in Solus's physical form, as far as we can tell. And so, it seems like the body is not what makes Solus the Dread Wolf. What makes Solus the Dread Wolf is mind and memories. Likewise, and perhaps even more dramatically, Spoiler alert for the end of Inquisition again. <laughs> Flemeth is Mithal, who is another ancient elven god. And again, Mithal has not always had the physical appearance of Flemeth. Flemeth doesn't even look like an elf. She's, she's not an elf nope. as far as we know. She looks human. But she has the ancient spirit of Mithal embodying and animating her somehow. And there's also this theory that that happens through Flemeth kind of passing mithal into her daughters, which is where Morrigan was freaking out about not wanting to go through her mother's ritual. Yeah. So there is definitely a sense that mithal has worn many bodies and it is not the body that makes mithal Mythal. It is memories and mind. So the mind theory comes up a lot. And this idea of continuity of mind being important for identity comes up a lot. Like we're not saying... Solas actually isn't the Dread Wolf because he's wearing a different body. Like, that's not what the game says. The game's like, no, big reveal. Spoiler alert, Solas is the Dread Wolf. Everybody gasped. <gasps> right? Yeah. Right. So there is a lot, I think, that points to the mind theory. Lastly, and we kind of already touched on this, Anders and Justice are both changed by their encounter with each other. And this one doesn't necessarily support the mind theory, but maybe it does. I think Anders and Justice actually has a lot more in common with Parfit and with this idea of survival versus identity. Because Anders and Justice are literally a fusion. (laughs) The thing is, though, what's interesting is they... Note I'm using a plural, they.
1: Yeah. There, There seems to be two people inhabiting one body yeah because it's like we can talk about anders on the one hand and justice on the other we can we can actually see justice manifest there's a blue glowy thing that happens and at at that crucial point where you are almost able to talk anders out of his crazy plan to <laughs> blow up the chantry not that i'm going to harp on that every <laughs> single time i can you, you think that you've managed to convince him not to do it, but yet justice seems to take over. It it seems like there's a manifestation of two different yeah. personalities. And so in some ways, that almost does support the mind idea yeah. that there are two minds because there's two sets of desires. There's two different personalities almost going on inside the body. And I think in many ways throughout Dragon Age Two, I I certainly think of them now. Maybe this is just me (laughs) being so heavily influenced by my (laughs) theories of identity and not critically thinking and pushing back against that sort of implicit assumptions that we often make. But it's certainly when I think about the character and when I interact with the character, I keep thinking, "Oh, now I'm talking with Anders. Oh, now I'm talking with Justice." And so it it feels like there's a, a dual dual minds inhabiting one body and that justice survived. But so did
0: Andrew. So <laughs> right? Yeah. so I think there's a couple of ways we can read this. I'm gonna push back on with the fusion narrative <laughs> in a minute. But one thing that you said that I think could support the mind theory is that when, when John Locke talks about the mind theory, he actually brings up this example of like day man and night man. And he says, imagine one body with two consciousnesses that alternate one conscious that is active during the day who will call day man and the other conscious the consciousness that is active at night and we'll call him night man. And he says, basically, what we have there is two selves right? So we have the body being used by one self during the day, and then the same body being used by a different self during the night. And if they don't share any memories, like day man doesn't know what night man did, and vice versa, then Locke says we have two selves, we have two different minds that are alternating, taking turns, moving this body around. And I think we can see Anders and Justice that way, to some degree. Like, as you say, we can clearly see when Justice takes over right? Mm -hmm. We can see, I think, when Anders is in power of the body. And so we could talk about this as two different consciousnesses alternating, taking control of the Anders body. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But but it's not a perfect representation of alternating consciousness in terms of the mind and memory theory. Because It seems that Anders knows what Justice is doing. Anders remembers what Justice has done and vice versa. Justice seems to know what Anders is doing. And I have one more point, (laughs) which is that many, many people have commented that Anders' personality and sense of self is drastically different from Origins Awakening to Inquisition. In Origins Awakening, he's like this kind of goofball who's like, yay, I escaped from the circle again, and blah, blah, blah. And he's really, really fun. And he's kind of out for a lark. That's true. In uh, Dragon Age 2, he is not that at all. In fact, my sarcastic hawk got in a lot of trouble with Anders because everything is so serious. serious. (laughs) Likewise, I think we can see a change with justice. In Awakening's justice is very solemn and very serious but very methodical and procedural and not prone to violence. (laughs) Yes. And in Dragon Age 2, every time the glowy justice appears, it is violence. (laughs) It is. And Anders says justice has been transformed through our sharing of this body. Yes. So I feel like perhaps it's not entirely fission. The two have not come together to form one. But it's also not clearly alternating consciousnesses either. Okay. So, my pushback against that
1: <laughs> is that on the one hand, two consciousness inhabiting the body doesn't necessarily mean that they have to lose awareness when one takes over the body. So, if Anders is aware of what Justice is doing, it could be because Anders is perceiving as Anders what is happening while he's not in control, kind of like being, you know, along for the ride. So, I think a lot of it would depend on. So how does he know, mm-hmm. right? Is, the, is it because he is sharing the actual memories of Justice or it's because he's observing what Justice is doing because he's still able to perceive what's happening? He's just no longer in control of the body. So if it's that, then I'm more inclined to still stick to my guns <laughs> there. Also, we can, I think we could, within the gameplay, explain the changes not as personal identity but changes in character and this is not something that is outside of how the game works because we have for example Liliana who can be hardened yes through the gameplay and inquisition which I always stress about and then I always forget one conversation at Haven and boom she's just a murdering machine she's just a murdering machine now and I Did that in my current playthrough. But the (laughs) idea is that our experiences and how we interact with other people in real life and in the game, the conversations we have with people and the interactions we have change how we ourselves are in terms of how we view the world, how we, I don't know, in the case of Anders, maybe mature (laughs) through his experiences so that influence doesn't necessarily have to mean that they are the same person in terms of personal identity, so I think there are other explanations, but it so in that sense, I still think my account could work.
0: <laughs> I think that there is some unclarity here. I do think that we don't necessarily know how Anders knows what justice is yeah. doing, and vice versa to push back just <laughs> a little bit. Anders seems to take personal responsibility for what justice does, which implies to me that Anders isn't observing it as a bystander because I don't take personal responsibility for somebody else doing something morally wrong. Oh, But I could. I could. So it's not conclusive, but it is potentially suggestive evidence that Anders doesn't feel himself to be a bystander when justice does even things that Anders, you know, things that Anders disapproves yes. of, but also things Anders approves of. He's yes. like, "Yeah, man, did I that. did that." <laughs> <laughs> even though I was glowing at the time, and you totally heard Justice's voice. <laughs> that was my vengeance. Awesome sauce. Um, <laughs> the other thing that I think, and this is getting a little tinfoily and Lori, which we tend not ah. to do on this podcast, but we know that spirits aren't actually supposed to change. So. Anders' identity growth from kind of happy-go-lucky to somebody who's trying to organize more of a social justice resistance to eventually militant violence could be seen as Anders reacting to other people and to the surrounding environment in which he's in. Justice isn't supposed to do that because <laughs> spirits aren't supposed to change. And so perhaps the embodiment, we can bring yes. back the body to count of identity here, and say, okay, the mind account may explain Anders, maybe there are some questions. I don't think the mind account definitively explains Anders, but I don't think it explains justice because no. the embodiment aspect changes justice. And that's the only explanation we have for why justice changes is that he is embodied and in this social world with us, because we're told that spirits in their natural state do not change. Although that would connect nicely with Cole too. Yeah. Right. That's where I was gonna go. Let's say which, way cool. which by
1: the way, could simply imply that spirits personal identity needs to involve the physical embodiment stuff.
0: <laughs> because otherwise spirits, spirits are a like perfect mind account of personal <laughs> identity, right? So when we embody the spirits, suddenly the perfect mind account of personal identity doesn't work. <laughs> oh, just before I
1: forget, pun intended one of the things, too, though, is that Cole makes people forget him. Yeah. Right? So is he changing their sense of identity? No, not within the game. They're, he's just making them forget him. So it's like these little blips, right? So it's not like... I know, but
0: on the John Locke yeah. account, that means the person that interacted with Cole is not it's, the person who benefits
1: from, from the interaction with Cole. Cole right? Or it's, his harmed? Yeah, he's <laughs> making new people all over the place.
0: And if we make Cole more human, if we fully embody Cole, he loses the ability to make people forget him. He enters into this social account yeah. now of personal identity. So there's a connection, I think, to be made between the embodied account of personal identity and the social account, which kind of makes sense. Because I, as far as I know, transhumanism aside, I only make social connections with people using my body. <laughs> like even now we're in digital space, but I'm still very much... Talking to Kira (laughs) and using my body to make a social connection. Yeah. So I think that Cole, the example of Cole really suggests to us that the games are not totally sold on the mind account of personal identity. That embodiment also matters. That Cole being in a body is being changed by that body. And this change is actually what brings up the distress where you have the quest to decide whether or not to help Cole become more spirit or to help him more fully embrace humanity. And it's he's brought to this crisis because being embodied means he is no longer fully spirit anymore. And some of the things that used to work when he was in spirit form don't work anymore. So I think that's really interesting, this kind of callback to the body and to the social, that Cole is held in his identity as either a human or a spirit by our actions and our choices. Do we choose to align with Vark? Like, absolutely, Varick's my buddy. I will do anything Vark says. Um, or do we choose <laughs> to align with Solus? not usually, um, in order to hold Cole in one identity or another? He can't do this alone. He is requiring a social connection to help hold him in his identity. And I think that's really interesting.
1: What's interesting about these choices, though, is that he doesn't have a preference. Cole doesn't, right? Yeah. So it's and I in many of these sorts of sort of choice points, it's it's always us who determines the identity of the other. I'm actually uh, Iron Bull. Yes. When you're making that choice, is he going to continue being part of the kun or is he going to become Talvishath when you? have to make the decision do we save the chargers his his mercenary buddies or not and that has profound implications for his identity and his sense
0: of self and sense of belonging in his the sense world of self. yeah
1: but in all of these instances and of course this is how the game frames it just yeah. in terms of it has to frame it this way they are always framed as i can't decide so now you, the player, are in the position to make the decision for me, yeah. and it's it's always interesting because, and this will probably come up when we shift to talking about what you know takeaways we can have that that's not how it works in no. the real
0: world. <laughs> no, and Lindman in her work is pretty adamant about this that we can if we don't listen to people in terms of what kind of identities. They struggle with or what identities serve them and help them flourish. If we impose our own ideas about who someone should be and how they should fit into the world on them, we can do huge harm. This is an immoral way of holding people in their identities. And often in the game, these choices aren't presented that way necessarily, right? It doesn't seem like whether we let Cole be a spirit or a human, both are good. Both are good ways of holding him in his identity. With Iron Ball there may be a bit of a pushback because in the DLC for Iron Bull, if you held him in the identity of the kun and if you said, no, you're going to be a Kunari, a good Kunari, He betrays you. He, yeah, we lose a connection with him. We lose our social connection when he outright tries to kill us by being activated as kind of a secret double agent. I mean, we always knew he was a secret agent, but yeah, he turns on you at a point in the game and uses all the glorious weapons and armor that you have <laughs> gifted him with to super try to murder you. It is not fun. <laughs> I
1: but I think what's interesting is for the cold choice it doesn't have. There's no, no implications any, on the game. There's no implications like I I haven't done the spirit one. So I know that if you do the human one, you know, you go out to a cafe with him and have a conversation right that's
0: it though that's really the only if you do the spirit one you go to the same cafe and it's just that everybody around him can't see him can't see him and so but we- otherwise the conversation he's very satisfied whether you're yeah. human or spirit but in both cases he talks about things he's gained and things he's lost and they're different but he doesn't seem remorseful in one sense or another
1: What's interesting with Iron Bull is that there's also no remorse either way, no. right? Well, because if you've solidified his identity as a member of the Kun, then of course his duty is to do what the Kun is demanding of him, which is to betray the Inquisitor and it's try to kill him. Not really and, a
0: betrayal anymore. You know,
1: it's it's and on the other hand, if you do make him Talvashoth, he's he's okay with that. Yeah, he he accepts
0: that identity as well. It gets you to help kill this the assassins that are sent to murder him. <laughs> yeah, but that's about it. And it's funny, but it. It. he
1: seems fine with it. He seems fine. He, well, because you know he's got his charger buddies, and yeah. but the the idea is that there aren't. Well, there might be ramifications for you, the yes. player, like Inquisition. I like,
0: felt terrible murdering Iron Bull when he turned on me.
1: <laughs> but from the perspective of the person who you are now, I. I hesitate to use the word imposing but in some sense you are put you are it's not so much a holding of identity so much as yes. placing identity onto because of yeah. the way the game yeah. frames it and you certainly don't know what's going to happen if if you're playing without any spoilers there's no indication of what weight decision will make. ultimately yeah. unfold yes. in either case you know which is Why I like playing unspoiled in some ways, but it's also a bit fraught because I'm always thinking, oh God, because sometimes the decisions can mean a lot and sometimes they don't mean much at all. And you never know (laughs) when that's going to be.
0: So yeah, I feel like there's a, there's a bit of a discussion of holding in identity here and of a social account of personal identity, but the perhaps the weight of the social account is not quite there. Mm-hmm. It's only there in the unspoiled playthroughs. But once you <laughs> kind of realize that Cole is going to be fine, it feels like you kind of lose this weight of needing to make a decision that honors and reflects back to him who he really is, because there is no who he really is. It's just whatever you decide. And of course, that's not the way the, the world works at all, which which really speaks to a, a perfect. He survives. He survives. Yeah. No matter what they you also, do, he survives. Well,
1: except Iron Bull, if you, <laughs> make him, if you make him part of the coon, he does not survive. Right. So if
0: we're talking about survival mattering, I guess we know which decision we should have made in the case of Iron Bull. Yep. But in coal, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so let's talk about survival one more time and talk about Flemeth. So I find Flemeth Liliana to a lesser extent, but Flemeth really fascinating because as we said, both of them die or can die in Origins Mm -hmm. and both of them pop up again in Dragon Age (laughs) 2. So Flemeth pops up again in Dragon Age 2 and Liliana, the downloadable content has her appear in Dragon Age 2. And then of course, she's a much bigger part of Dragon Age 3. And spoiler alert, Flemeth dies at the end of Dragon Age 3 again. But does she? But does she? You can kill Flemeth in Origins. But the thing that's interesting about Flemeth is, like, she knew that was a possibility, right? So Flemeth creates, I don't know how else to say this, like a horcrux of herself. Yeah. (laughs) She, like, partitions off part of her soul. And she gives it to the character that will end up being the playable character in Dragon Age 2 and says, I want you to take this away from my murdery daughter to this other place, to Kirkwall, the outskirts of Kirkwall, and then do this little ritual with the elves and poof, there, Flemeth is reborn. What that means though, is if you don't kill Flemeth in Dragon Age Origins, you still resurrect Flemeth outside of Kirkwall in Dragon Age 2. There are two Flemeths possible. There may only be one, right? Because you may have murdered her in Origins, and then poof, she's awake again in two, alive. But there could be two of her. And so when she dies at the end of Inquisition to get a little bit tinfoily, is she really dead? (laughs) Maybe not, because we've seen her do this once before. But also, to get a little philosophical, if there are two of her, personal identity theorists would ask, which one is the real Flemeth, right? And Parfit would say, a double survival is not a failure. That They're both her. Go Flemeth. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's really interesting. Liliana, a little bit less so here. So Liliana can be killed in Origins and then poof, she's alive in two. Yeah. And you can ask her about it in Inquisition. So if you killed her in Origins, you can ask her in Inquisition like about this. And she says she doesn't know what happens. That oh. she remembers dying and then she just wasn't dead anymore. And she was just like on the ground of the te- Temple of Sacred Ashes alive and she doesn't know how that happened. Magic! So there's a break in memory continuity, the same as we've seen with other characters. Liliana doesn't remember how it was that she came to be alive again when she remembers dying. So from the memory theorist, is Liliana a new person? I mean, kind of, because there's a loss of continuity there. But from Parfit's point of view, yay, Liliana survived. We don't care how. She survived. (laughs) It doesn't matter. (laughs) I want to talk about softening and hardening Liliana as well. Because my intuition, and this goes back to the issue of holding people correctly in their identities. My intuition is that the better thing to do is to soften Liliana, that that allows her to be truer to both who she was before war and hardship kind of made her murdery. And also that she seems more at peace with herself if you do that. Mm -hmm. So, It's small and it's subtle. It's not like if you harden her, the game kind of tells you that you have absolutely failed and caused her huge amounts of mental distress because she's being held in an identity that does not serve her. But I think that softening her does seem to be more faithful to both who she was and also in very small ways who she wants to be. I would agree with who she wants to be. And I'll be honest, it's because
1: for me, wanting to soften her is entirely about what happens if she becomes divine.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's the, the consequences of her being hardened are actually really, I think terrible in terms yeah. of the, the lore that as, as the game ends and you're being told what the outcomes are of everything. And it's, if she's softened, you know, the world is better. Yeah. Not just for her, although absolutely, I think for her that she is at peace. She
0: reconciles her relationship with the divine. Right. And I think... And reconciles herself with the role she exactly As the left hand of the previous divine and all of the spy, murdery stuff that entails Exactly.
1: But... Beyond that, the consequences for other people,
0: (laughs) if she's not softened, are, I think, really quite scary. But I think that is one small, subtle way that the game does suggest that the way we hold people in their Mm -hmm. identities may matter. Even though that doesn't necessarily come out with Cole, I think it does come out, perhaps not as strongly as I would like, but it does come out with Liliana, that hardening her is I think subtly framed as a less optimal outcome, not just for the world, Mm -hmm. but for her in terms of her being at ease with herself. Yes. So let's move to our fourth segment now and try and digest what we can learn from all of this. So a modern girl in Thetis. So what can we learn? Well, as Kira said with the magic-y stuff, Fission and fusion aren't too likely to happen outside of sci-fi and fantasy. So I think it's really cool that we see Flemeth fission, and we see this idea that survival may be more important than identity, but that's not something we're likely to encounter outside of Thetis, probably, yet. But I think these extreme boundaries can tell us just how flexible our intuitions about identity can be. And perhaps we can see some of Parfit's point that we should be less concerned with identity, with saying, I'm the same person I was, that it's it's okay to lose continuity and to change in sometimes very radical ways, and that our accounts of sense of self should be malleable enough to deal with those kind of changes, even at the extreme ends where there's vision and fusion. <laughs> Like Anders and maybe Anders. I guess we left that controversial. Like maybe (laughs) Anders and definitely Fleming. As I said, Parfit hoped this would lead to a bit of a reduction in egoism and maybe more concern and care for our fellow human beings, recognizing that perhaps what we want to talk about is survival of the species rather than continuity of any one individual. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing. I don't know if the game pushes us in that direction necessarily. I think that... The game definitely does have a heavy emphasis on mind and memory continuity for identity in several points. So there is a bit of a worry of this transhumanist narrative that only the mind matters and only survival of the mind matters, but I think that the Dragon Age games actually push back against this in several points as well, where they bring up Cole, for example, whose embodied form does change his experience where they bring up social accounts of identity, whether or not we choose to support Kohl as a spirit or as a human, whether or not we choose to support Ironbola's Tal Vashoth or Knyari, whether or not we choose to harden Liliana or <laughs> soften her, that these social accounts and embodied accounts do come up to kind of challenge this idea that all that matters is mind and memory. I also think in terms
1: of the the way in which it encourages us to think about our interactions with others that i i can play a large part of the game before i retrieve my memories yeah and people still have to be interacting with the inquisitor absent those memories and it's not like they have to say well you're not the same person that you were before or and i think we can take those sorts of lessons into how we think about dealing with people who have lost memories. And I'm thinking in particular of my grandmother-in-law right now, who's experiencing dementia and it's, it's quite severe, but it also some of the things are kind of amusing in terms of how they play out. So she is absolutely convinced right now that they are living in a bordello. Cool. And the, the, issue that often confronts people who are caring for people with dementia is do you try to fix the memory? Do you try right. to challenge... Correct the people when they're when they're saying something false. Exactly. And I think that idea of holding people in terms of where they are as a way to, and also coupled with Parfit's survival account, which I'm more and more sort of <laughs> keenly thinking about is to think about where they are now and given the nature of things like dementia where there is no fixing yeah the memories there that it will just cause more stress to the people to be constantly reminded in some ways of that something but not being able to fully comprehend that there is a problem of memory yeah. that Thinking about games in these sorts of ways and thinking about how the game plays out can give us some insight in terms of how we could at least start thinking about personal identity in these cases that, well, maybe they're not a different person because they've lost their memories. Maybe, maybe
0: Dorian is wrong to put so much emphasis on memory. For example, we recover Fenris's memories. I mean, we don't recover his memories. I apologize. We help Fenris try to fix what has been lost by uncovering who he was. It does not bring closure. Nope. It does not fix anything. Instead, the message seems to be that this is who Fenris is now. And our job is to support him where he is now. Yeah. That we do that quest with him. He desperately wants to do it it does not fix things and perhaps that's something that he and we needed to learn and i i think that just really connects with the social
1: accounts of identity that Mm -hmm. when it all comes down to it and i think what makes these games so attractive is it is all about the social connections i mean yeah it's fun to kill dragons you know but I think what keeps me coming back to these games over and over again is the way in which the social interactions change people and you are able to choose ways of interacting with people that are both ethically and socially interesting and raise these sorts of questions that can encourage you to do deeper thinking into, oh, wait, I learned that thing in intro philosophy ten years ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, on that note, we've come to the end of episode four of Andraste's Gadfly. You can reach us at Andraste Gadfly on Twitter or andrastesgadfly at gmail.com. Until next time, everyone. Bye. Bye.